Hello, I'm Pastor Rob Spencer of Church United. We are excited because God is at work in our community of Christ followers. And it is my hope that God works in your life as you listen to this message today. If you'd like more information about Church United, please visit us at churchunited.family. Good morning, Church United. How are you? My name is Will Kitchen. For those of you who don't know me, you guys are too sweet. Woo-hoo! Thank you, Jason. I'm honored to be with you guys today, um, not to preach at you, but to worship the living God with you. And uh, we're going through this series together as a church, and our sister church, Village Church, is doing that as well. Um, and we're, we're talking about classic Bible stories, the stories that we all remember from when we were kids. Um, everybody loves a good story. Stories allow us to walk in another person's shoes, to experience emotional highs and lows, explore morality, and many other aspects of the human experience. A good story will drag a person through the full range of those things, and if it's written well, will leave a person with a greater understanding of who they are as an individual and a greater understanding of the characters of the story as well. And if you guys didn't know, the Bible is full of just those kinds of stories. Now, most of us who grew up in church, maybe even some who didn't, remember a lot of these narratives. Stories like Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Moses and the burning bush, Father Abraham, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah and the big fish, that one's unforgettable. And we remember these ancient stories and their details because they are truly unforgettable. Each of them are full of drama, tension, tragedy, relationships, and very importantly, at least with the Bible, good endings. As kids, it was easy to sit and listen to these stories and think things to ourselves like, like, wow, Noah must have been a really good guy for God to use him to build that big giant boat when he was so old, or, man, if I just have faith like Daniel did, I can get through anything. And all of these applications that we tend to come up with are generally valid. We can certainly find good moral application in any of these Bible stories. But what we're going to look at today is the fact that these events, and they are real events, are recorded for all eternity, and they're unified in a singular purpose. Not so that we can learn good morals. Not so that we can entertain our children or ourselves with outlandish tales, but that these stories, these narratives reveal the sovereignty, the holiness, and the providence of an all-powerful God as he works all things according to his purpose in human history. If we spend all of our time in the scriptures searching just for little nuggets of psychological inspiration, we're going to totally miss the point. And when it comes to Bible stories, I think the story of Joseph is a perfect example of this. I want us to look today at three major parts of Joseph's life. And they are this, his position of honor with his father, his betrayal at the hands of his brothers, and his exaltation in victory. At the outset of Joseph's story, one thing becomes abundantly clear. Joseph is the object of his father's highest affection. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 37, and I'm going to read verse 3. 
Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. Now this is a classic story, right? The coat of many colors. Everybody remembers that one. And as lovely as this story may be, we can't just leave it as is. What I want us to understand this morning is that this just isn't a nice story. There is nothing in the Bible just for fun and giggles. We're not reading about this coat of many colors just for reading's sake. So what is the point of this? We could say, well, Jacob loved Joseph more than his other kids. Okay, coat of many colors, great, cool. Let's move along, nothing to see here. Cool story, bro. But if we take this stance, we miss the point of the whole story. And everybody wants to understand the point of the story, or the story just doesn't have any value. So what am I getting at? I'm getting at this. If you want to understand the story, you've got to look for the glory. Now what do we make of this first part of Joseph? Where is the glory to be found in the love that Jacob showed his young son? I think it is this. Just as Jacob loved Joseph above all others in his family, and, and Jacob visibly set Joseph apart from his brothers with the coat of many colors, so too does God the Father love Jesus Christ more than the collective whole of all humanity. He loves him exceedingly greater than anyone who has ever or will ever lived. And he set Christ apart in, the, in an absolutely undeniable way. And in what way has God set Christ apart from the rest of mankind? What makes Jesus different from all other men who have lived or will live? And I think for that, we need to turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. This is the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 6. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jacob set Joseph apart from the rest of his family by placing upon his body a marvelous garment, the coat of many colors, signifying the honor bestowed upon him by his father. In the same way, the Ancient of Days has set his son, Jesus Christ, apart from the rest of his children by clothing Christ in the transcendent, unabashed glory of God. Do you see the parallel here? 
Jacob gives Joseph a coat of many colors. God gives Christ the glory of God that shone forth from him. These glorious parallels between Joseph and Jesus don't end here, though. It's like a 1990s late-night commercial. Remember those? But wait, there's more. Now we come to the part of the, of the story where Joseph's brothers betray him. And if, I want you to keep Jesus in mind when you think about this. There are parallels. They, they betray him and they sell him into slavery. Head back to Genesis chapter 37. And I'm going to start in verse 18. When they, Joseph's brothers, saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands, to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty, without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Joseph said, or Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. We read this terrible plot conceived in the hearts of Joseph's brothers and we gasp in horror. This is the worst kind of betrayal. Betrayal at the hands of one's own family. And as easy as it would be for us to extrapolate some kind of great moral of the story, if you will, here about how we should learn to persevere like Joseph did, to be more like Joseph, put those thoughts on hold for a moment. And remember what we just talked about in relation to the coat of many colors. And what did we talk about? We found Christ in the great love that Jacob had for Joseph. The parallel being the same kind of love that Jacob showed Joseph, God shows to Jesus. And again, we're going back to our main point. If we want to understand the story, we have to look for the glory. So how does this part of Joseph's life point forward to the work of Jesus? There are three key elements to be seen here. Three foreshadowings that, when understood in light of the New Testament, make it very clear that God knew exactly what he was doing and orchestrating not only the life of Joseph, but the writing of Scripture in general. One, Joseph's brothers saw him coming and they plotted his death. That's verse 18 of Genesis 37. In the same way, the religious rulers of the Jews had been waiting and watching for Jesus to return to Jerusalem, seeking to find any possible way to destroy him. The triumphal entry and the Passover week was just the opportunity that they had been looking for. And the unifying trait between Joseph's brothers and the Pharisees was simply a proud and a haughty heart. 
Joseph's brothers and the Pharisees were proud, too proud to accept the idea that someone else might be in authority over them, if you will. Joseph's brothers hated him for that reason. And the rulers of of Israel, they hated Christ because in Christ's holiness, he utterly cast aside and exposed their useless, self-righteous, religious tradition based on their own righteousness, their own works. And the end result was the same for both Joseph and Jesus. A plot was set in motion and a trap was laid for him. And then Joseph was captured and he was stripped of the honor that was rightfully his. Genesis 37, verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. Joseph's coat wasn't only special because of the many colors. It was all about what the coat represented. It represented the firstbornness of Joseph, even though Joseph was the youngest son of his father at this time. When the brothers stripped Joseph of his tunic, what were they doing? They were symbolically removing the outward mark of his inward honor. The honor that was given to him by his father. Christ, too, had a special garment. In the crucifixion account that we read in John chapter 19, and specifically verse 23, we're told that Christ's tunic was seamless and woven in one piece. This is a very rare and a very valuable item in the ancient world. There weren't many of them like it. Christ was set apart both inwardly and outwardly from the rest of humanity. So he had the glory of God emanating from within him, and he had even a special physical tunic upon his body from the outside. And Jesus, like Joseph, was stripped of this robe, just as Joseph was. And this fulfills, believe it or not, the words of the psalmist in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. This is fulfilled prophecy right here. Just as Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob in honor, so too was Christ the prototokos, or the chief one of all men. And finally, after being abused, mocked, and stripped, Joseph was cast into the earth. Verse 24. In the story, it is as if Joseph is dead. Even though he wasn't really dead, it was as if he was dead. He was as good as dead to his brothers. He was cast into a pit. The pit was empty and unused. Sound kind of familiar to another story later on in the Bible? Christ, too, was cast into the earth after his death. We learn of this in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56, that Christ was laid in an empty tomb, an empty hole in the earth. But Joseph would not stay in the pit nor would Christ remain in the tomb. Just as Joseph was removed from the pit and sold to a band of Ishmaelite Midians, so too did Christ, by the power of Almighty God, rise from the dead, leave the tomb, and in doing so, clear the path for all races, ethnicities, rich, poor, and all other types of people to come into the presence of God himself on the basis of what Christ has done and who Christ is. And now we see, I think, what the story of Joseph is all about. It all points to the ultimate act of redemption orchestrated by 
a good God who uses even the most vile, wicked, abominable actions of man for his glory and for his purpose. In the midst of proud hearts, betrayal, unjust trials and executions, God brought about good in the truest sense. And ultimately, Joseph's brothers found themselves in the presence of a glorified Joseph, an exalted Joseph. They approached Joseph. They had shame in their hearts, repentance on their chest. And Joseph's response to them, when he speaks to them and, and, and kind of reveals who he is, is one in which I think we can almost hear the words of Jesus himself. It's almost as if Jesus were speaking. Turn to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph speaking, and he's speaking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Joseph's suffering resulted in the preservation of the lives of his family. In the same manner, and, I, and far more gloriously, the sufferings of Christ are continually to this very day resulting in the salvation of the souls of those who place their trust in him. So with that, I want to leave you guys with a challenge today. Us, all of us, with a challenge today. And I want to preface this challenge with a question. Do you know Christ? Do you want to know Christ? And I don't mean to simply know of him or to know a few little things about him. I'm talking about to know him deeply. If your answer is yes and you're wondering how you can have this deep knowledge and relationship, first trust him. Trust in him. And what do I mean by that? I mean believe in who Christ is and what Christ has done. Secondly, commune with God at every opportunity. And what does this look like? Prayer. Probably the most neglected of all the spiritual disciplines among any Christian, if we're honest. Prayer. Life is full of opportunities and need, and God commands us to go to him in prayer. And we cannot separate those two things, trusting in Christ and prayer, from the diligent, hard study of the scriptures. The scriptures, which I think we've demonstrated here today, is where Christ is revealed. We can know nothing of God, nothing of Christ, unless it is derived from the Bible. The Bible is the source of all spiritual knowledge. If you want to know Christ, and I think this is our, our total takeaway for today, if you want to know Christ, look for him on every page of the Bible. You can find him in Joseph's story. You can find him in the creation account. You can find him in Jonah and the whale, Adam and Eve, the whole thing. He's there. The entire Bible points to Jesus. So study the scriptures. I promise you, if you will do this, if you will diligently do this, 20 minutes a day, more hopefully, you will find him. And he will transform your life. He will transform your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is found in every page. 
Teach us of you as we commune with you in prayer and study and reveal yourself and how we should live in light of who you are. Give us the grace needed to follow you in everything. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's give it up for Wells. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Hey again, everybody. It's good to be here with you this morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, Jonathan. Um, my name's Brett. Again, for those of you that may not have met me, I'm actually the worship director at Village Church, which is the sister church to Church United. And we get to do a lot of pretty cool things together. So it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, we're going to continue to dig in some scripture and uh, study the word like Will's called us to. Before we do that, I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you like to fish? All right. Yeah, believe it or not, there were a lot more hands up in Churchville. <laughs> no, awesome. I'm glad that some of you enjoy it. So I grew up in Florida, so I'm somewhat of an avid fisherman, or at least I used to be. It looks a little different in Virginia. You guys like to fly fish and freshwater fish. I grew up saltwater fishing. But across the board, no matter how you fish, most people are familiar with a fisherman's innate ability to uh, make their fish sound a lot bigger than it really was, if you know what I mean. Yeah, after a long day on the water, if you haven't had much luck with, you know, casting and catching whatever, that six-ounce snapper that you caught can quickly turn into like a 36-inch redfish that I had to throw back because it was above the legal limit, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, but we're going to look at a story this morning that talks about a big fish, and Will's actually mentioned this. Um, this fish was so big, in fact, that it swallowed a man whole. If you haven't guessed it, we're going to be reading through the book of Jonah and learning the story of the prophet. Now, this is a story that many of us have heard before, whether it was in Sunday school or if you were like me, you were lucky enough to view the full cinematic VeggieTales experience in theaters, which was pretty exciting. Um, and while most of us are familiar with, with parts of the story, there's actually a pretty big piece that tends to get overlooked when we think back to what we learned, you know, when we were kids. And together, we're going to find that message today. So first, I'm going to cover the familiar parts of the story, actually reading through the scripture, but I'm going to be jumping from verse to verse. Um, and we'll start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. So as you guys turn in your Bibles there, I will pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to be here, to look into your word, God. I pray that you would just humble my heart now before you, Lord. Father, that you would give me the words to speak, to reveal uh, just your mysteries, Lord, to, to this church this morning, God. And... Uh, we love you, Lord. We trust that your word will not return void. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, guys. So here we go. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So three verses in, we learn that Jonah is a disobedient prophet. That's going to be important to remember. And in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So there's this huge storm that appears uh, because of Jonah's uh, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And in verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, which is kind of like drawing straws. Uh, we see it a lot in the Bible. Uh, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And in verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men who were exceedingly afraid said to him, 
uh, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So in verse 15, they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So as soon as they tossed Jonah into the ocean, the storm ceases. And in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And in chapter 2, verse 1, after three days and three nights inside the fish, Jonah decides to pray to the Lord. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And in chapter 2, he prays a prayer of thankfulness uh, and repentance. It seems that kind of getting swallowed and almost eaten and consumed by this giant fish might have given him a little bit of a change of heart in regards to how he wants to walk in obedience to the Lord. Um, and in verse 10 of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So this is the point of the story that most of us could have achieved on our own just off of the top of our head, um, which would lead us to see that God actually spared Jonah due uh, to his apparent change of heart and repentance. Now, that might be somewhat true, but the story doesn't actually end right here. There is still a task that God has for Jonah that needs to be accomplished. So despite Jonah's prior disobedience, the Lord calls upon him yet again in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth, meaning it would have taken Jonah three days to walk from the east side of the city to the west side of the city. So Jonah began to go into the city going one day's journey. So he went about a third of the way into the city, kind of towards the middle, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this is the message that the Lord gave to Jonah to speak to the Ninevites. And in verse 5, we see their response, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we see that Nineveh believed God. They put on sackcloth. They fast as a symbol of, of recognizing their sin before the Lord. The sackcloth was basically just this burlap sack that they would wear. But it was a way for them to humble themselves before God. And in a few of the other verses in chapter 3, it even says that the, the king sent out a decree to the entire nation of Nineveh that no one would eat, not even the cattle. The cattle were fasting. They put sackcloth on the cows also. This was huge. They really genuinely repented. And because of that, we see that God relented of their destruction. So let's jump into the last chapter and see how Jonah feels about this. So chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In other words, does it make you feel better to be upset about this, Jonah? And in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, 
and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Yet again, same thing. But God said to Jonah in verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, Jonah, says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now there's something that Will said a few minutes ago, actually. Uh, He said that all good stories have good endings. Now this is the end of the book of Jonah. And personally, it doesn't really seem like a good ending. It kind of seems like a bad ending at first. But if we dig a little bit deeper, then we discover what the Lord's heart is in the way that he speaks to Jonah. And chapter 4 also reveals Jonah's heart. So first we see that Jonah is hateful. He hates the people of Nineveh because of their lawlessness, because of their sin. He tells God that he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God was merciful. He knew that they would be spared despite their sin and their brokenness. And he didn't want to see that happen. Now, while Jonah seemed to have a mental understanding of God as merciful, he failed to see the heart behind God's mercy. And God responds to Jonah's anger to show him this with a simple illustration. And it's through the plant. The plant that comes up over Jonah's head and provides a shade, which he so quickly falls in love with. And God reminds him that he had nothing to do with its creation. He had nothing to do with its destruction. Yet Jonah so deeply pities the plant when it dies. And God compares that to his love For Nineveh, again in verses 10 and 11, the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God's desire all along from the beginning, his heart of mercy all along from the beginning, was to save the people of Nineveh because they are his creation. And he cares for them. He desires to see them turn from their wickedness and return to his loving arms. There's another story in scripture that spells this out pretty clearly to us in the way that God cares for his creation. It's in Luke chapter 15, if you want to turn there with me. Starting in verse 11. This is the story of the prodigal son. And he, Jesus, said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs." And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again." He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This story of the prodigal son shows us just how much God loves his people. The characters in this story, the son and the father, the son that goes off and spends, squanders his, uh, his wealth, his inheritance in reckless living. That's us, guys. That's us. That's Nineveh that we just read about. And the father, the father is God. In the way that he runs and embraces his son when he returns to him, when he comes to him humbly and repentant, and he says, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father reassures him and tells him, no, I love you. We're going to celebrate because you were once lost, but now you are found. Guys, we have an opportunity to return to God. And this opportunity is known simply as the gospel in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 25, it reads, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now this story that Peter is telling is about Jesus Christ, who is the perfect and sinless son of God. He lived this perfect life, yet died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So that way, when we run and repent, when we return to the Lord, he sees us through the lens of Christ because of the sacrifice that he made. And Jesus understood the heart of our merciful God. He knew that God wanted to be reconciled to his people, and in his obedience, he walked to the point of death on a cross so that God's will could be fulfilled. Unlike Jonah, who turned and ran from God because he misunderstood God's heart. He misunderstood that God desired to save Nineveh. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us the opportunity to be saved and be reconciled to God's creation yet again. And the word gospel that I mentioned earlier means good news. And the really good news is that we are children of God. And just like we saw, God wanted to save the people of Nineveh because they were his creation, because they were his children. He desires to save us too. And he desires to be reconciled to you today, just like Nineveh, just like the prodigal son who ran back before his father. And all that he asks to receive this free gift, to receive this reconciliation, is that we humble ourselves before him. We believe that we need the salvation that he offers. We recognize our sin like the people of Nineveh did. And we humble ourselves. And we ask for forgiveness. And we believe that he has and can save us. 
Today is an opportunity to respond to that good news, to that gospel. If you haven't done that, if you haven't humbled yourself before the Lord, today is the opportunity to do that. We're going to sing another song. The band's going to come back up now. We're going to sing another song. And during this song, your opportunity to respond is now. And uh, also, I'm going to invite the prayer team up to just kind of come stand at the front. If you need prayer, if you need to accept Jesus into your life today, if you need to humble yourself before the Lord, now is the time to do so. And for the believer in here, if you've already received the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a call here for you as well. If you find yourself at odds with God's heart, with his mercy, in the same way that Jonah was at odds with God's heart and his mercy, then now's the time for you to humble yourself as well and repent from your sin. Because God desires to use you in such an incredible way. Through Jonah, even in his disobedience, God led him to save over 120,000 people in Nineveh just by bringing them the word of the Lord. And he desires to do that with you too, but you have to be willing and you have to recognize God's heart. You have to recognize his desire to save because if you find yourself at odds with that, if you find yourself hating others because of their sin, if you find yourself angry because of people's sin, then your heart is not aligned with God's. And that has to change, guys. That has to change. So during this last song, I encourage you, come forward. Ask for prayer. Be prayed over. Humble yourself before God. Now's the time to do so today.